0: Our Father, Your Word says, uh, delight yourselves in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Lord, our desire in this moment is that You, uh, through the preaching of this Word, might work by Your Holy Spirit to help us understand this passage that we've just read and how it applies to us. Lord, may you do that uh, for our benefit, of course, but for your glory, and this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't have a policy on uh, what a pastor should wear in our church family. We generally go with smart, casual. I I don't know how well we get on with that, but never mind. Uh, in some denominations, though, a minister's attire uh, can look a little more formal, a little bit like this. You know, we've seen the kind of the black shirts and the the white collar. I'm not sure we could pass off that look, but um, apparently the New York Times says that you've, if you're a mega church pastor, you, you need to look a little bit more like this. Apparently, you are uh, nothing without leather trousers or a pair of Yeezys. Um, But this week, I came across what I believe might be a suitable alternative for pastoral attire, and it's this t-shirt right here. Pastor, do not shoot, is what it says. Now, the reason why that's up there is because pastors, elders, even those leading in church ministry areas of various forms can sometimes find themselves in the firing line. And when that happens, it's really very, very important for the church's health, for the reputation of Jesus, that, that we respond in the right way. Because if you respond in the wrong way, it's catastrophic. Relationships break down, and the ministry along with it. But respond in the right way, then even something which began with conflict can actually turn out uh, to strengthen and make relationships even healthier than they were before. And again, I start with that because this has been the Apostle Paul's experience with this Corinthian church. A church that he planted, a church that he's taught and discipled, a church that he absolutely loves, but Paul is under fire. He's been heavily criticized for being fickle and flaky, for failing to come good on promises he's made, all because he said, I'll come and visit you again, but later changed his mind, deciding that it would be better to give them time and then to send a letter first. Now, Paul's response to their criticism, certainly the criticism of a significant number within that church family, is right there in chapter 1. And so far, we've seen him defend his integrity. He's proudly affirmed that his conscience is clear, his conduct is sincere, and as James superbly showed us last week, his faithfulness is solid, kind of like God's, very much like God's. Well, in this passage today, we find Paul explaining two things, why he didn't return to Corinth, and why he wrote a letter instead, right? And in those two sections of Chapter 1, verse 23 to verse 2 of chapter 2, and then verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, we find two crucial aspects of church leadership, two principles that when applied, direct a leader's ministry, regulate a leader's response to criticism, influence a leader's ambition, and promote good health in a local church. It actually has an awful lot to do with all of us, not just those who are leading. And there are two points I'm going to work through. See, two-point sermon, Ashley, predictable. Number one, cultivate joy. Number two, communicate love. It's that simple. First of all, a leader's responsibility in every respect is to cultivate joy in those they lead. This is verse 23 through to 2, 2. So aim for joy in every one you lead. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what's behind all of his decision-making. He says, I've been in the firing line for changing my plans, but I've only ever had your joy, Corinthian church family, in my sights. Verse 24 says, uh, we work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So how did he do that? Well, Paul aimed for joy in the Corinthian church by sparing them grief. When you read verse 23, he says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now, it doesn't say what he was sparing them from there, but you only have to read on to verse 1 of chapter 2 to see that it's grief. Sorrow. Sadness. That's what it would have caused if he'd come again so soon. Now, what are they grieving over, this Corinthian church family? Well, it's they're grieving over their betrayal of Paul, the one who loved them enough to risk his life to bring the gospel to them in the first place. They're grieving over the grief that they have caused Paul himself. They had fallen so easily for these lies of false teachers who've infiltrated and divided the church, and there was surely grief over admitting complicity in the guilt of the church member whose sexual immorality even made unbelievers in Corinth blush. That's why Paul calls this previous visit that he made from the time when he was in Ephesus, he calls it the painful visit, okay? It was a grief-filled visit. It brought an awful lot of sorrow to everybody in this situation. And Paul says, look, you really, really need to understand what I was doing there, church family. I changed my plans because you needed more time to work things out on your own to let the work from my painful visit Have time to percolate through your hearts, through your minds, from member to member to member, throughout the entire church, so that you've actually got some some time to repent, some time to change. And God's my witness, Paul says, I'd stake my life on it. That's what I was doing. Now, this isn't an uncommon thing for someone in leadership to do. Number one, to actually address some misunderstanding of motivation. Why did you do that thing that you did? Ah, you must be up to something crafty. No, honestly, I wasn't. But it's not unusual or uncommon either to give people that, that a leader may speak to just some time to mull over the things that have been said. And to take a lot of care not to cause too much grief or sorrow. You know, if a leader likes to swing an axe or shoot from the the mouth with words and has a deep sense of satisfaction at putting someone in their place, you probably should not, in fact, no, you should not be in leadership. That's not the manner of Christian leadership, certainly. But sparing someone grief may well be the way in which we work uh, admonishingly but tenderly for... A person's or a church's joy. Now, in putting it this way, Paul straightaway anticipates criticism because he says it was in order to spare you, to spare you. Now, the forcefulness of his letters has already been raised as an issue elsewhere, but Paul graciously reassures them that he aims for joy in the Corinthian church not not by lording it over them but by working with them. We see that in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Now, Paul is someone, as we know, who had authority. We saw in chapter 1, verse 1, that he has apostolic authority given from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If anyone could lord over the church, it was Paul. But apostles aren't lord over any church, and nor is any pastor, nor is any church leader. Only Christ is lord over the church. So lording it is not the way that Christian leadership works, and Paul makes that clear here. Church leadership is never domineering. It's sacrificial. You don't rule over. You serve alongside. Now, Paul certainly spoke with authority and called for the people here to submit, but he's not calling them to submit to him. Who's he calling them to submit to? To God himself, to his words. So Paul disciplined not to embitter them, but to enlighten them. He preached not to coerce them into following him instead of these other super apostles that are competition. He appealed to these people to change. That's why he didn't revisit them so soon afterwards. He's given them time to let God's word convict them and to respond by making these necessary changes themselves. Now, the pastor then, or even a church or ministry leader, is in every sense like Paul, a servant of Christ and a servant of the church at the same time. True leaders aren't lords. Now, that does not take away from uh, the God-given authority to those in leadership. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, it calls on church members to obey their leaders and submit to their authority. But only as those leaders practice genuine Christian ministry. Where? Like true shepherds, they keep watch. Where they know they'll give an account to the one who truly is Lord, Jesus Christ himself. No, Paul does not work over them to make them fearful, he works with them to make them joyful. That's ministry. As he insists in verse 24, we work with you for your joy. Now, what do those four words tell us about the shape of church leadership? Whether it's the kind of leadership that we should look for, or the kind of leadership that doesn't look like this so that you can run away from it, or even for those who aspire to leadership in a ministry, or in pastoral ministry, or something like that. Well, the word we says it's plural. Uh, Christian leadership is never a one-man or a one-woman show. The we here, of course, refers to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, Paul's little uh, pastoral team that's doing its work. And we in Charlotte Chapel believe that leadership is plural, too. That's why we have more than one elder. That's why we enjoy having more than one person on the pastoral team. What do such leaders do? Well, they work. Uh, The word for work in here has in mind labor, sweat, like the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier of 2 Timothy 2. Energy is spent with a goal in mind, glorifying Jesus by building up the body. Honoring Christ, the chief shepherd, by being a faithful under-shepherd of the flock that's been entrusted to their care. So we work with you. That's what Paul says. Now this is an interesting one, because what Paul means when he says with you is that it includes each and every one of you. It includes those who are being led as well as the leaders of the church their discipleship requires as much effort, labor, and discipline as the Apostle Paul here puts in. Same goes in our church. It takes as much effort to listen to a sermon as it does to prepare and to preach it. Christian leadership and Christian discipleship, sorry, isn't spoon-feeding. It's really, it's much more like feast-laying. You know, it's It reminds me of dinner time in the Garvey household, you know, when we've got dinner ready and uh, the table set, it's ready to come, and then you just have to call, Dinner's ready! And then nobody comes. (laughs) And you have to say, Dinner's ready! And then maybe still nobody comes. But eventually they come, because actually what you have to do in order to enjoy the food is prepared for you is to obey the call, come and feast, come and eat. And that's really the responsibility of everybody who is a church member or everybody who's involved in a ministry in the life of the church family where there is a leader who's put some work in to prepare, whether in a small group, in timeout, or in growth group, or something like that. They can do their work that's required of them as leaders. But everyone actually has to come and pull up a chair, grab a plate, do some chewing in order to get some benefit from it. So we work together in this. Paul says, my painful visit and my tearful letter have given you, Corinthians, food for thought. Pull up a chair, chew on it, change, is essentially what he's saying. Now, church family, one of the ways that you can demonstrate that you're working with the leaders in the church, is by returning to the church now that restrictions are lifting. Well done, you lot, (laughs) for booking up your slots. Uh, It has been God's grace to us that we've been well fed during lockdown. But honestly, it's like we've been eating microwave dinners on our own, right? That's what church has been like. But this... And more gathering, regathering, it's a feast. This is the means of grace that God designs for His, church, for His church to enjoy. And that's what we must do. And that's the goal. It is joy for us. It's not just any joy, of course. It's not just a, a sense of being, oh, we're here, so we're happy. It is purely joy in Jesus. Gathering with people who belong to whom? Jesus, hearing the word of the Lord himself and singing songs about Jesus. Eventually, eventually, it'll come. Do we respond to the gospel with joy like that? As Luke fifteen seven says, heaven does. There's joy in heaven when sinners turn to God. Do we rejoice in different aspects of the character of God, even his justice and his judgment? As Psalm 96 tells us, all creation rejoices in God's justice. Or is our redemption, the fact that we are saved from our sins, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, is that a joyful thing to us? Hebrews twelve two says that the achievement of it was such a joyful prospect to Jesus himself that he scorned the shame of the cross to save people like you. And people like me. He rejoices in us. And so should we. That's what we should all aim for in our life together as a church family. Each other's joy. And that is definitely what church leaders, elders, want to aim for here. In every member in Charlotte Chapel. When one of us preaches, we're working for you with you for your joy. When we visit you to celebrate something great, we're working with you for your joy. When we're contacting you because you're cutting off contact with us, we're working with you for your joy. When we come alongside to humbly admonish, we're working with you for your joy. When we come alongside in hard times, When you're despairing, feeling like you've got no strength, we're working with you for your joy. Why are we in this? Why do leaders lead in ministry or in church life? Well, that's what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians. It is this: it's to work with you for your joy, as Paul says elsewhere in Philippians one. I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. See, we rejoice in one another, working together for one another's joy. Who gets the glory? The one who truly deserves it, not the leader. Not the member, Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Now, I'm not saying at all that I or the leaders in Charlotte Chapel get this right. Um, I, I, I preach this well aware of my own sinful shortcomings in this. I can definitely look back, especially over this time of lockdown, over these 12 months, and realize actually there have been a number of days and a number of weeks even strewn together where I've not been working for this church family for their joy. I've wallowed in self-pity because of the loss, the sense of loss that's been experienced through the whole situation. Well, this is a very helpful passage for us all. We can do the work of ministry for all sorts of reasons, bad reasons even, you know, for our own reputation or working for selfish gain. Even half-hearted work is not working for a church family's joy. And I love the fact that God's word contains this very text in order to regulate what leadership looks like in a local church. And don't forget, this is what leadership looks like in response to a church who've been betrayers of Paul, dismissive of Paul, saying he's, he's not that much, is he? After all, who's Paul. And yet, look how he says, no, 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 no. He could have given them a talking to. (laughs) He could have torn a few pieces off of them. But he doesn't. Because in his heart of hearts, he wants them to have joy in Jesus. That's what regulates all ministry. Paul aims for joy in the church by sparing them grief. By working with them, not over them, but also to preserve his own joy in them. See, in verses 1 and 2, this is interesting. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? But you whom I have grieved. This is the great apostle talking here. Don't miss this. We forget that he's human sometimes. That he has feelings. He has a heart. He's not a senseless robot. He's just a pastor. He feels grief. He feels deeply for the people that even he's had to go and grieve. I mean, which of us does not know a child or a friend or someone who who has had the gospel explained to them? Maybe it once said that they believed it themselves, who... They are not following Jesus, and despite our heartfelt pleas for them to return, come back, believe, well, we feel our hearts break at that kind of thing. I think that's how it feels for Paul. I think that's how it feels for church leaders who minister in love. It's never an easy thing to do. Leaders are grieved in ministry for all sorts of reasons even when it seems like they're being firm or strong. I mean, I remember once having to confront someone in a church meeting for meanly undermining the credibility of a pastoral search committee, and it was, it was so divisive and so mean. I could see the look on the committee members' faces, the faces of friends of this man who just said what he said, absolutely astonished at what he was saying. Now, I ached at that moment as I realized as I chaired that meeting that I actually had to say something there and then, and in that meeting, I called him to repent, but it absolutely grieved me to do that in front of all those people. I'd rather he had spoken to me outside of the meeting, and then weeks later, I was uh, I was caught in the street and criticized for being one who enjoyed that moment, but that was far from true because after that meeting, I remember sitting in my car weeping for about fifteen minutes before I could drive home. He was completely wrong, but ministry in ministry leaders can feel grief, much like Paul is talking about here. It grieved him to say to the people that he loves that they have been wrong, that they should be admonished, and they needed confronted. Of course, to have to confront anyone about ungodliness rather than marvel together in gospel growth is a hard thing for Paul or for any church leader to do. And again, if you're the kind of leader who finds some kind of sinister satisfaction in that kind of thing, you should not be in leadership. There's no joy in confronting people or in grasping nettles. Now, Paul's words here reveal that leaders have hearts, of course, but routinely it is the people of God who make him glad. That's what we find in here. But also, he doesn't look for perfection, of course. Don't mistake him in this. Just read 1 Corinthians the relationship doesn't need to be perfect either. All you need to do in Second Corinthians is read between the lines. It's not perfect. Paul doesn't expect them to meet a certain level of um, excellence in church membership before he'll say, I'm going to work with you for your joy. No, this is while they're, well, starting to turn back to him, really, is the context that they're in, having upset and offended him. But the call for leaders in this respect is to cultivate joy. That's the first point, cultivate joy. The second point then, and this is shorter, communicate love. Communicate love. We see this in verses 2 to 4. Where anyone in ministry leadership, whether in pastoral ministry or in leadership of a ministry in the life of the church, feel deeply for everyone you lead. So don't just aim for joy in everyone you lead. Feel deeply for everyone you lead. That's what Paul does. That's actually what's behind his letter. So he's just told us in these previous verses that we've looked at, this is why I didn't come to you. These two verses, three verses, two, three, and four, are him telling us this is why I wrote to you instead uh, a letter that's lost. It's called a painful, a tearful letter. He says, I'm in the firing line for changing my plans and for sending a letter, but I did it actually to show you the depth of my love for you. That's what you see in these texts. I wrote as I did, verse 3, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So Paul wrote to let the church know that he acted in love. And that's what his letter proves. He postponed his visit to avoid unnecessary distress. And as we said, to allow them time to respond to the word. And he was confident that they would. Or else I reckon he would have gone again. From clues later in the letter, it seems that many people in the church responded immediately to Paul's painful visit. His strong words and loving admonishment. Is discipline. But many still didn't. Some eventually did because Paul's instruction percolated through the church. No doubt through the members themselves who had repented and had begun con- convincing other members. But a minority of unrepentant folk following the ways of those, as I've called them, the Jewish, y, TED-talking braggers, the people who are the super apostles, who boast in their own gifts and abilities and think they're stunningly awesome. They haven't yet responded. So they're still a minority, and we'll see this as we go through the letter. Paul will still address those folks. But Paul reasoned that another letter rather than another visit was actually the most loving thing that he could do, more loving than to visit. Now he didn't have to explain himself, we have to remember. But out of love for them, even in his letter, he explains his actions so that there would be nothing to hinder the relationship in the gospel. Paul's already said earlier, in verse 12, I think it was, his conscience is clear before God. He's got nothing, nothing's on his conscience, no guilt about his practice, what he said, what he's done, what letter he sent, what letter he's not sent, the visit he's made, the visits he's not made. His conscience is clear. But look at what he does. He loves them so much that he wants to make sure there is no possibility of confusion. None of those we inkling thoughts that could drive a wedge between his relationship with them. What an example. You know, what good could we do in all kinds of situations to carefully consider? what is the most loving thing that I could possibly do in this situation? We can see how helpful that could be in our family lives, in married life, in arguments with flatmates or over dirty dishes or whatever. But certainly in church life, we are all still sinners after all. (laughs) We still disagree on things. Too many can shoot from the hip when making decisions, or too many can love the self when making decisions, but how sacrificial, how loving, how Christ-like of Paul. I love you, I really want you to know that. I'm only doing what I feel will maximize your awareness of my love for you. I love that. So Paul wrote to the church to let them know that he acted in love, and he wrote hard things through tears. Did you see that in verse 4? For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. It's hard to read the tone of a letter correctly, isn't it? You ever sent an email to someone to ever have, sent an email to someone to have them ask, is everything okay? You seem a bit short with me in that email. <laughs> or have you ever received one? You're just not quite sure how to read it. They say, I'm really cross. I'm not sure what I've done. Well, Paul's words in this lost letter, this tearful letter that he sent, were evidently firm, but no less moving. It was a tear-stained letter. He wrote out of a broken heart. Hard things needed to be said, and it was hard to write them down. But actually, as we see through the rest of the letter, their salvation depended on it. Their faithfulness to Christ depended on it. And he wasn't trying to be harsh or domineering. As we've said, he wrote out of a heavy hand, proved by his tear-clouded eyes and watermarks on it. John Calvin said in his commentary, it is the part of a pious pastor to weep within himself before he calls upon others to weep to feel tortured in silent musings before he shows any token of displeasure and to keep within his own breast more grief than he causes to others. That's loving leadership. That's the kind of leadership you should pray for in people like me, in your elders. It's what we should pray for in our ministry leaders. It's what we should aspire to be if we aspire to be leaders you know someone really loves you if they're willing to tell you how much of a numpty you are in some areas right i mean you really have to be well loved by someone for someone to say do you know what you're actually really a numpty people who don't love you don't really care enough to tell you that you are or too afraid to but love breaks through casual relationships love doesn't really care about fear because of the confidence in the hearts that are entwined in christ in love and they'll say it they'll say the things that matter do you know people who love you like that do you love anyone enough to be a friend like that where correction isn't critical but formative, not to trample but to serve. thats Christian leadership. It's Christian discipleship. It's just the way of Christ for his people. It's a good thing to be loved that much. It's a good thing to be loved by leaders who reflect that kind of love. And how can we look at this and not think about Jesus Christ? <laughs> I mean, when we think of those leaders that we are called to imitate, those who can be our examples, he is the perfect example. When we talk about leaders who act in our best interest, despite the way that we've acted towards them, well, he loved us enough not to leave us in our sinful state, even though our offensiveness was an offense to him. He moved us enough to come to tell us hard truths. He loved us and came to us. He he came to prove that He was saying and doing all in love and for our good. If the cross is not the absolute proof of that, I don't know what is. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Indeed, his willingness to lay his life down proves the extent of his love. He refuses to leave his sheep where they are. You will not be lost. You are not only found. You are loved. Now, I don't know what your story is like from your past sometimes you can look back 5 years 10 years 20 years and wonder how could how could he say that how could that be true of me and my situation you know whether you were run and riot or goody two shoes or whatever else in between it doesn't really matter you were a stench in the nostrils of god because of your sin Whether it was good-looking sin or ugly sin, it's all sin. And God, in love, sent His Son to be our Redeemer, to take our judgment upon Himself. So that all who come to Him in faith and repentance might believe in Him and by believing be saved. So friend, if you're here tonight or if you're watching online and you have not yet, read God's word, and come to the conclusion, wow, he really wants me to be joyful. And he really does want me to know how much I'm loved. You need somebody to read this with you and explain it to you more. You need to read it for yourself and find out who Jesus Christ is because when you do, you will realize there is no one like him. There is nothing like his love and no greater joy than to be found in him, none. Friends and leaders who model themselves on Christ are the best friends and leaders that you could possibly ever have. So let's pray for friends and leaders like those and let's pray that we are and that we would be friends and leaders like those truth-tellers, working for one another's joy and loving, communicating that as best we can. The cultivation of joy in those we serve is foremost. The communication of love in those we serve is foremost as leaders, let that be. For our pastors, elders, ministry leaders, let that be what regulates us. And let us, in serving our church family in whatever way we can, realize we are serving Christ the one whose love is our delight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love, for your unspeakable grace in making it known to us. Oh, we did not deserve that. But you have made us glad. You have made us happy in you through the knowledge that painful knowledge of our sinful state. You loved us enough to tell us who we really are and what we're really like. And thank you so much for showing us a Savior who made a way for all of that to be washed away and for newness of life to be ours Thank you for the joy and the love that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the joy and the love that He has poured into us, making this gospel known, giving us His Spirit, changing us bit by bit with ever increasing glory, readying us for the inheritance that will be, as your word describes. Everlasting joy. Oh Lord, we thank you for this. We pray for leaders, leaders who cultivate joy and communicate love in all things. We pray for our relationships within the church family, that Charlotte Chapel will be marked with leaders and members who are all out for one another's joy and keen for communicating love. Lord, give us grace in this, we pray. And give us your help by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.